This podcast is supported by Domestic Beast, offering stylish collars, nap-tested dog beds, tasty dog treats, and dog dishes even you'd eat out of. Browse a wide selection of hand-picked products at DomesticBeast.com. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast dedicated to looking at how new technology platforms let creative people reach audiences to fund and to distribute their work. I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm a freelance technology reporter, contribute regularly to The Economist, and I'm the executive editor of The Magazine by Marco Armand. In this episode, I talk with Chris Anderson, the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine, about his new book, Makers, which documents the rise and the ability of people to use digitally controlled tools like 3D printers to make real-world stuff. Chris is a maker himself, having started the DIY do-it-yourself drones community to pursue his interest in unmanned aerial vehicles, UAVs, pilotless personal planes. That interest led him, in turn, to co-found 3D Robotics, a firm that supplies parts, kits, and nearly fully assembled drones to hobbyists, and now grosses over $5 million a year. Chris announced after we recorded this podcast that he would be leaving Wired to join 3D Robotics full-time. Uh, you know, I was planning this podcast, and uh, I come across this book that you happen to have written recently called Makers. And uh, I start reading the book, and I realize it's practically a blueprint for what I want to talk about in this, you know, for the next few years about uh, the new economy. Uh, so we had a talk. And Makers uh, is the third book in what feels like a trilogy, is Long Tail, Free, and Makers. Tell me how you came into this. These, are, these all seem at some level almost accidental. You found a thread and started pulling, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And I definitely did not set out to write even one book, much less three. The, the short form is that uh, The Long Tail, which was my, my first book, uh, came out, uh, I guess it started as, a, as, a, as an article, as a, a series of speeches in, 19, in, in 2004. That just emerged out of a brief window of opportunity um, with data. I, in my background is I was, I was trained as a physicist, and I'm kind of a, you know, a math and stats guy, not a journalist. And, but I did recognize when I, you know, I took over Wired... Uh, and, you know, arrived here in 2001, you know, I'd come from The Economist. I think of economics and science and statistics as being kind of the lens and the toolkits that I prefer to use to see the world. And as I came to Wired, I, you know, whose mission is to you know, tell a story about how technology is changing the world, I decided that what I could do, not, not, being a, not really being a journalist or a media guy myself, but what I could do is bring some data to bear and sort of, you know, start to kind of measure these changes and that I felt the profile of the 21st century consumer um, or, or, or 21st century society was probably in the servers of the Googles and Yahoos and Ebays of the world and I should just kind of call them up and ask them whether I could have that. And obviously a naive question <laughs> uh, and, but you know amazingly enough you know you make enough calls in those days by the way I'll get to how you can't do that anymore yeah. but in those days you could make enough calls and the, with a little bit of negotiation and some NDAs and, and, and anonymizing data Center, I actually started to get these massive data sets of, you know, cons- of behavior on of consumer behavior on, on sort of you know huge scale, and just started you know put them in the spreadsheet and and start measuring and you know ranking and trying to kind of graph it out and you know I just couldn't I couldn't make the graphs look right I just couldn't see anything and I realized that I'd really never worked with with data sets that big before I mean we'd worked with huge data sets in the physics world um, but I'd never worked with you know big consumer data sets mm-hmm. like this before and um, you know it's, the reason I couldn't see anything is that the difference between the best selling the most popular items and the less selling and the, and the, and the rest of the items were so great that it basically um, you know, stretched all the scales so that you know everything. All the data was kind of you know slapped up against the x and the y axis, and you couldn't see it. So the only way I could basically see the see the data was to cut off the top hundred. I started with mm-hmm. music data. It was I think we were at Rhapsody and music service. I started with, 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 with uh, tracks, and by cutting off the top hundred tracks, I was able to see everything else kind of suddenly popped up off the uh, off the x-axis, and I could suddenly see that it was it was there, and they were actually selling in tens of thousands. It was just the millions were obscuring it. The ones we're selling in the millions were you know were, were compressing the scale. So I. Um, so that very act of simply just cutting off the top 100 so I could see the data made me kind of turn my head to the right 
And I just, and I, you know, I, I had a million tracks and a million tracks added up in total to more than in that case, the top hundred. Right. And um, we, we had a conversation back when you were preparing that book, because, uh, I, when I'd worked at Amazon in uh, 96 and 97, we'd seen that in a way that, you know, Amazon was much more secretive about its data, but we'd seen already, and some of it started getting talked about publicly when publishers disclosed it, that, you know, I think it was Simon and Schuster early on said something about most of their backlist had sold one copy through Amazon the previous month, or at least one copy, when in the previous several years, you know, it had been a, a tiny, tiny amount in relative terms. Yes, uh, that, that, that's exactly right. And, and you know, it, it Jeff Bezos, who's genius and sort of anticipated all this was was probably the first to really recognize the opportunity in the long tail but then it, then you know you, you start to recognize as i just you know just this exercise of trying to make you know excel work you know turned me on to the notion that if i turn you know we were, we were focused on the left side of the popularity uh, scale but the internet is agnostic the internet has room for everything the, the the blockbuster and the niche buster if you will and that we've been so used in the 20th century to measuring society through the you know through the hits and 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 culture through the commonalities, the you know the prime time and the you know drive time, um, that we'd forgotten that we actually are all different and unique, and the internet and the internet doesn't care. Got room for the ones as well as the as well as the ten millions. And one of the problems with the long tail was I thought your thesis was absolutely correct, and it's proven out. We're now ten plus years after that book, right? It's almost. It's over ten years old now, and it's uh, or close to ten years. I think the, the, book, the book itself came out, I think, in ninety six. I saw two thousand six. Um, oh, is it that reason? It's funny. It seems well. I mean, I know the article predated it, and it, the article it's, predated it. So I think the data has proven out over time that the long tail isn't. It's not an artifact. It's a. It's a phenomenon. But the thing that I never liked about the long tail wasn't your conclusion that it existed or that it was useful. But I thought the long tail's benefit, you know, from an Amazon standpoint, Amazon makes money off the long tail because it's more unique things they can sell and often at higher margin the further you go down that tail because they're harder to get. It's good for the publishers because the publishers are suddenly selling 10,000 copies a month of their entire backlist where they used to sell 100 copies. What it wasn't good for, and what I think you've developed in these next two books, is it wasn't good for the producer. It wasn't good for the creator because if I write a book and it sells one copy a month, that's no good for me, even if it's good for the aggregators up the level. And I think as you've gone through this accidental trilogy, I feel like we've gotten closer and closer to how does the creator buy into this long tail phenomenon or become part of that in a way that benefits them and they get to participate in the economics of it too. Exactly. Well, so so the, so the first book, The Long Tail, sort of said there's life beyond the blockbuster and it recognized the power of niches. But you're right. Most of the value was by the uh, aggregators, the, the Amazons and Ebays and, and Googles, etc., who could, you know, offer the entire you know, the entire marketplace from head to tail. Those in the tail, they had some advantage of being in such a marketplace, perhaps more advantage than they would have had in previous marketplaces or the internet. But you're right, you know, it wasn't a, a get-rich-quick opportunity for them. My second book, Free, really reflected on the fact that maybe economics is not the only way to look at these things. Mm. That, you know, when you look at the internet, you know, most activity is done for free. Most activity is done for non-monetary reasons, that social incentives and, you know, and self-expression and all those things turn out to be sufficiently motivating to create most of the content on the internet. You update your Facebook page, not because you're paid to do so, but because you have you have other reasons. And in fact, most of human behavior, you know, you don't charge your, your children for services rendered. Um, you know, most, most human behavior is, is done for non-monetary reasons, social, cultural, um, you know, personal, etc. And, you know, volunteers are often more more motivated than conscripts. So what that recognized was, A, A, that economists were sort of limited in their perspective on internet markets because they were looking at money as, as the metric of activity, whereas, in fact, what we, what we used to call at those times is things like, you know, expression economies or reputation economies. Those were all, they were economies. I mean, right. remember, economics was originally political economics. It was originally designed to reflect, you know, um, society rather than simply the exchange of cash. And, and, and I think, you know, in, in some sense, the Internet went back to that. Um, so well, I think, what, so I, well, I think there's a point you referenced there is that there's a social capital, there's a social currency that can't be measured in 
in strictly dollar, you know, we're, we're, the economists may be using dollars and cents, but the social currency that everyone who had been part of the internet, you know, often, I mean, in some ways, even back to the beginning, because so much of it was unfunded, you know, the activity that was occurring, it was ex- academic exchange. Then even when the commercial part started, there was so much information exchange. There's so much of this, I mean, it's called what user generated content, which is sometimes deprecated because it's part of, um, you know, I has cheeseburger or what have you, but yeah. the internet's currency was people were engaged in a, what appeared on the outside to be a kind of selfless generosity. But if you participated in it, you knew there was actually a lot of self interest as well as we all participated in a system in which we all benefited by exchanging social currency in the form of information. Right. And, and I think your book, your book told that story about the un, I think the uncharted and uncounted part of that. But because I write business books, I turned it into examples or illustrations of business models built uh, around Brie. And, you know, obviously we now have many examples, the, you know, freemium being the, the, the best example, the, uh, you know, most of the app economy on, on your iPhone is, you know, starts with the, the free and trial versions and moves up to the paid version. Oh, and I remember you were sort of ridiculed at the time the book came out. I mean, this is only, this is only three or four years ago, right? or not even that, only three years ago. And I remember seeing a lot of criticism of your discussion of freemium models of this whole thing and it was just as the smartphone explosion started to happen with the iPhone and now half of I think it's half of cell phone users in America now carry smartphones I just saw this the other day before you had that preponderance of people with mobile devices it was about buying apps it was about buying services and you hit right at the inflection point and I recall seeing these people critique the book and say he doesn't get it because free isn't sustainable there's no and then you know <laughs> then you have well there's a billion people playing this game that costs them nothing you know, we, we wanted to call the book uh, freemium, which, by the way, is, is not my coinage, unlike the long tail. Uh, freemium was actually coined um, by uh, one of the venture capitalists, uh, Fred Wilson. Oh, yeah. Oh, very he smart was the guy. popularizer of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the way, I, you know, I was just actually talking to Fred the other day, and I think all my books basically consist of um, uh, um, explaining Fred Wilson's <laughs> investing philosophy about three years after he initiated <laughs> Turns out that, that, that ten years is probably too early. Three years, exactly. Right. But, exactly. Um, but it was interesting when free came out. Um, the newspaper industry was going through its kind of you know first crisis or first long string of crises, <laughs> um, where they considered that the that the free content was the death of of you know traditional professional journalism. And I think you know a lot of the concern about the book at the time came from a very kind of personal fear among journalists that free was uh, was 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 the enemy, not so much unsustainable, but unsustainable for them. Mm-hmm. Um, freemium should have been the title um, of the book. We actually considered it this title, and it was just too early. the The term hadn't hadn't really gotten um, a currency uh, yet, uh, so uh, we we called it free. But the book is mostly about freemium, and yes, the app economy, but uh, you know also the cloud. Most services that go into the cloud start with a free version um, that offers sufficient utility, and then you have an opportunity for five percent or ten percent people to upgrade to a paid version, which is a win win for everybody. Free becomes the best form of marketing. I think people under- misunderstood the title and a lot of the content that you were talking about giving stuff away. And it wasn't about giving stuff away. It was about the economy of things that didn't cost money. Exactly. It was the economy of things that didn't cost money and the notion that in the digital space, free samples become the best marketing for paid products. Right. That was the, the second book. So that was, you know, the first book was largely about the explosion of creativity and variety and choice that the internet allowed and the recognition that there was life beyond the blockbuster. The second was really about the business model um, for such niche content, which was, again, it because digital stuff costs nothing to produce, you can charge nothing for it. Convert and converting five percent of your of your free users is a is a great business. And then and that took me through the digital space. And then we got to about five years ago when and we'll probably have to tell this story <laughs> at this point in the podcast. But you know, right. when I started getting turned on to the reality that you know just as the first um, you know personal computer sort of allowed us to become computer operators and programmers and then content creators and then you know and then later on the web allowed us all to become publishers that suddenly a new class of technologies and tools was arriving on our desktops that was allow us to become manufacturers. And suddenly I didn't I didn't sort of it didn't pop into my head. I actually did it and sort of learned through doing. Um, I could see that we now had the opportunity to apply the long tail to the well, real world. Let, let me back that up just a little too, because I think you know long tail was about um, atoms being easier to distribute 
uh, as bits, as information that you could, you know, long catalogs as well as digital information. Mm-hmm. The the free free was a lot about bits and about how digital technology made it easier to distribute stuff at no cost in order to achieve those higher levels of, of sales or, or fees. And then Makers gets us back into atoms manipulated by bits. And it's part of the same story. And so, uh, you know, I think listeners who think of you as uh, Chris Anderson, author of these books, editor-in-chief of Wired, this magazine that's printed, it's distributed in the hundreds of thousands to newsstands. And so, and it's got a digital edition. It's like, okay, there's all that. But then there's Chris Anderson, the guy behind do-it-yourself drones, who spent an enormous amount of time and helped found a company that uh, is doing millions of dollars of business selling drone kits and assembled products. Like, you know, and it, suddenly I'm reading the book. I knew a little bit. I've read your articles. I followed it. And I'm reading your book and I thought, I don't remember the part in which he becomes an entrepreneur and gets his hands, you know, you put your hands inside, entirely down into the mud and are really, you know, you're, you're working it. So tell me, this is a great story about how you started down the path of becoming a maker and, a, and an entrepreneur. This, by the way, is completely accidental. I mean, you're, you're right, it's an accidental trilogy, but this in particular, my, you know, this, this venture into the maker world and entrepreneurship um, was uh, um, equally accidental. Um, it's simply an act of parenting gone horribly wrong. <laughs> I've got I've got five kids, um, you know, from a four-year-old to a fifteen-year-old, and um, I'm I'm always trying to get them interested in science and technology, and you know, invariably failing. <laughs> so you know, I started a, a site called Geek Dad, which was specifically to create projects, or you know, to sort of share and and um, and document projects that were you know, science and technology projects that were fun for you and fun for your kids, as opposed to fun for your kids and really boring for you, or vice versa. <laughs> and, of those. Um, so I, you know, and I thought I, you know. I try to act, you know, walk the talk. And one weekend uh, here in the office at Wired, we got these uh, two boxes in for review. One was a Lego Mindstorms robotics kit, and the other was a radio control airplane. And I thought, okay, I, I cannot go wrong here. This is going to be the best weekend <laughs> ever. We're going to build a robot on Saturday, and we're going to fly a plane on Sunday. And the kids like Legos, so they were like, they were like willing to do it. They're a little skeptical of my stuff, uh, of my projects. Uh, the first skepticism is that, is that they, in fact, are, are going to be boring. And the second skepticism is that I'm going to be blogging about it, <laughs> which is actually a fair, fair cop. Children, children are great fodder for material, as I can testify as well. They are. My wife has had words with me about that. Um, <laughs> So on Saturday we uh, we we start up and we you know open up the box and we build the Lego robot which is a three wheeled uh, tribot and you know spend all morning building it and following instructions and you know you know assembling the code it's got a great little sort of you know, visual code editor it's really really beautifully done very impressed uh, put it on the ground and um, press go and it does what it's supposed to do which is move forward until it sees a wall and then back up and the kids were like you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, I've seen Transformers. I know oh my God. where are the lasers? I, you know, why does this not stomp around the house? And so, you know, the problem is that Hollywood has ruined robotics for children yes. and you just can't compete with computer graphics. So I was pretty impressed, but the kids were very unimpressed, but I'm like, okay, we'll do it on Sunday. Um, on Sunday, we'll fly a plane, go to the park, look at YouTube videos of acrobatics. It looks pretty cool. We go to the park and, you know, th- launch it, go straight into a tree and, oh you know, then God. spend the next half an hour climbing up the tree. And the children <laughs> are mortified. And it's just bad. So they think that uh, the weekend's a bust. I'm kind of cross at them, maybe a little upset with myself. And I just think about it. I go out, I went out for a run. I was just thinking about it. I was like, how could that have gone better? How could I, mm-hmm. that Lego, Lego Mindstorms kit was so amazing. It had these sensors. It had the gyroscope sensor and accelerometer, you know, gravity tilt sensor and a compass sensor and had Bluetooth, which connected GPS. And God, you know, I bet that Lego could have flown the plane better than me. And I thought, <laughs> Wait, actually, maybe it could have. So I got them back. Some of the children, I got them around the, tra- the table one last time. I said, let's build a Lego autopilot. And sort of, you know, explained a little bit how the mm-hmm. sensors might work. And we, we kind, of, kind of, you know, mocked it up and, you know, took a couple of pictures, put it on Slashdot, you know, le- called it a Lego UAV. UAV is unmanned aerial vehicle. Lego UAV. And it kind of got a little popular and people seemed to think it was cool. And, and then the kids lost interest and I went right down the rabbit hole. <laughs> That, that's the way it goes, right? Is that's the that's the start of many a good uh, a good business. But it's the uh, the synthesis, right? As you saw these two separate things, and in both of which had separate limitations. 
he wanted to combine them into something that was that was bigger than the two separately. What it turned out is that Lego was not the answer, but what it turned out mm-hmm. is that I had just stumbled on a moment where the smartphone revolution, um, you know, uh, and the iPhones and Android phones, etc., were basically making all the components of sophisticated robotics super cheap. So the same way that the Homebrew Computing Club and Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak came up with the Apple II because a, a chip that a regular person could almost, with a you know a, a lot of wiring and you know hacking around, create a personal computer. And the simple fact that regular people could buy this essential element unleashed this new form of, of, of innovation about computers, which, which brought us the personal computer and desktop computing. And, and it, it wasn't the most powerful computer, but it was the most democratic computer. It, it put computing in the hands of everybody, and that's what created that digital revolution. And I realized that smartphones were doing the same thing, that these sensors, and you know, when you, when in, inside your, your iPhone, it's, it's just miraculous. The quality, you know, these, these tiny chips that have these incredibly powerful sensors, GPS, uh, wireless, cameras, what's going on in the ARM processors is astounding. Moore's law has never worked faster than it's working right now inside, inside your, your mobile devices. And as a result, all these, these components, which used to you know, be unobtainium, basically, you right. know, used to cost tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and be the size of a lunchbox, military-grade stuff, was just in your pocket. I quickly realized that I just stumbled on a moment where we had sort of military-grade technologies in our pockets that were being used to make phone calls. And you just run a different app and a different cable and you could fly a plane. Well, I'll tell you, I'll sidebar for a second too, which is I had the same conversation we're having now with uh, Sandy Antunes, uh, who's the uh, author of a series of books about DIY satellites. He's a Pico satellite expert. And he has told the same story is that there was a point a couple of years ago, it came after, I think, your point uh, here, where he suddenly realized he could get the microgyroscopes, the mi- all the uh, microelectromechanical systems, the MEMS items that are now, they're incredibly cheap. And he said, essentially, you can take what's inside an iPhone, more or less, and put that in a Pico satellite format and meet the weight requirement and put it up in orbit in a way that before you needed the entire uh, military industrial complex to make things that were this cheap. So the same trend I think you were seeing in the drone side, they're also seeing uh, it's, it's spread through different aspects of this, um, of this maker desire to, to since you have uh, access to technology vastly beyond what we could have had uh, before, say, 2007. Well, so here's the important thing. And for me, it was like late 2006, early 2000. The important thing is that I knew nothing. <laughs> I was completely ignorant, completely ill-prepared. You weren't deterred. Uh, well, no, because the beauty of knowing nothing is that you have to start looking for information and, and quickly discovering that, that, you, that, there, that there wasn't enough of it. And because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a web guy, I just decided to share my ignorance and start a site. <laughs> and so I started, a, you know, and, you know, five years earlier it would have been a blog, but, you know, it was now 2007, <laughs> social was starting to take off. So I started a social network on the, the, the Ning platform, which was easy to, to do, and we called it DIY drones, so DIYdrones.com, and I basically just started posting my little journey of discovery. Everything I found, I would post. If I had dumb questions, I would ask them. And it turns out a lot of other people were just coming to that same realization that we had in front of us: these amazing chips and 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 things that, like you know, the, the Lockheed Martins have known for decades. We didn't know, but we could find out because right. it's the internet. And we very quickly built a you know quite a large community. It's one of the largest robotic communities in the world right now, and and just basically people from all different disciplines sharing you know teaching each other about stuff that used to be secret in military and super expensive and fast forward a few years it became clear that people wasn't enough just to offer their you know code and, and design files that people actually just want to buy it just want to you know can, can you just make it for me and so i ended up starting um, i uh, well I'll, I'll very briefly one um, when it became clear that people wanted manufactured goods um, one of the guys on the site who'd really impressed me by flying a, a helicopter with a hacked Wii controller <laughs> and turned me onto the Arduino platform, which, yeah. which is um, an open source um, computing platform. Um, I, I say his name was Jordi Munoz, and I said, uh, you know, Jordi, I, you seem to be the smartest guy around on, on this. You want to start a company? And he's like, sure. And so we started doing a couple projects. And at this point, I was like, you know, we should probably incorporate. Uh, I'm going to need to know a little about. So I never met the guy. Need to know, know a little something about you. <laughs> um, turns out that when I met him, he was a uh, 19-year-old um, living in Tijuana. Oh, my God. I just, so I just graduated from high school. Yeah. And, um, you know, I never been to college, didn't have any you know, particular training in this. He just, you know, was smart and curious and had access to the Internet. Um, and 
you know, today he today just to fast forward today, uh, the company we started, 3D Robotics, is uh, you know three years old. It's a multi-million dollar company. We have two big factories, one in San Diego, one in Tijuana. We have you know, something like forty plus employees, and we put more drones in the air each year than the whole U.S. military has in its, <laughs> in its fleet. Now, our, now to be That's cl- great. clear, our drones cost like six hundred dollars and are you know and weigh a couple pounds and are often made out of you know foam or fiber. Right, you've got all these F- all these FAA limits, so they have to fly low and close and, and, and yeah, limits, right. et cetera. And the military ones cost millions of dollars and they you know drop fire from the skies. But you know, there's a convergence but, there. I want to you know, in the same yeah. way that the PC wasn't more powerful than the mainframe, but it was more democratic. You know, we're trying to essentially create personal drones and and do that kind of, you know, democratization movement in aerial robotics. Well, I want to blow up a moment you were talking about a, a minute ago, which is the the fact that you knew nothing. You're, you're a uh, tabula rasa going into this saying, how do I do this thing? Maybe other people know. I, I think there's this um, issue that the internet has uh, unleashed more recently, it feels like, than in the last, say, previous 15 or 20 years is, it used to be the guys who knew stuff were gatekeepers, because they had the knowledge, and I say guys, guys and gals, a lot of th- guys in engineering, they had the knowledge and they weren't always resistant to tell you, but they would tell you what wouldn't work. And because, mm. because they were dealing with their shared history, and you know this, you see this with the Unix people especially, is they say, you can't make that happen. And so that's how Linus Torvalds makes his own operating system. I would say at this point, um, I don't think we're doing anything that the high-end aerospace contractors haven't already done, you know, the mm-hmm. parts of the world. We're not suggesting that we've come up with great insights or come up with algorithms they haven't. The dimension that we're exploring is price. We basically want to achieve sort of, you know, 90 plus percent the features and capabilities of military grade drones, but for 1% the price, 0.01% the price, the military industrial complex is not very good at exploring the price dimension. They're kind of incentivized not to. And and yet, you know, democratization happens when you make things cheap and, and easy and, and accessible. So I think what we're finding is that stuff that seemed hard is increasingly easy. And that the number of people who can contribute usefully to drones, and and that happens to be my thing, but it's true for almost any maker industry, is much larger than the people who are professionally employed to do so. The fascinating story, I think, why DIY drones and 3D robotics is a great story. And you're inside it, so you can tell it first, you know, about the the pick-and-place machines you had to buy and all of that and the scale you had to go through. Is It's a great demonstration of, I think, the story you tell throughout Makers is that it's it's a combination of 3D printing, of um, the ability to get customers custom-made circuit boards now for a fraction of what that used to cost to be able to upload a diagram and get it back in a week or two or to make it yourself if you get you know slightly more expensive technology uh, the Arduino platform and some other competing open source and even proprietary platforms where you don't have to invent the operating system at, at all I mean this is what's powering Pico satellites it's powering uh, the revolution I think in um, what's happening on Kickstarter and, and now soon beyond of hardware that's not coming from a billion dollar company, but it can have the polish and appearance uh, and perfection of something that might come from a billion dollar company. I feel like throughout the makers, you're emphasizing all these separate atomic revolutions. Exactly. Let me use another historical analogy. Um, In 1984, 1985, um, Apple released the Mac and then the LaserWriter. Now, today, we don't think anything about desktop publishing. We just take it for granted. But at the time, it was kind of mind-blowing because, remember, publishing was something you needed to have a factory to do. Printing plants with, like, ink by the barrel and barrels and rolls of paper by the rail car. Um, and then suddenly it had been turned into something that you could do on your desktop with some you know, point-and-click software, and then you press print, and out it would come at professional quality. Now, that was allowed to make a few of something, but still, it was pretty empowering. We made, we made you know, horrible documents with the dog's breakfast of you know, fonts <laughs> and choices, but we got better quickly. And but more to the point, you know, we put the word desktop in front of an industrial technique. And suddenly that meant everyone was could potentially be a publisher. And then along came the web and everyone could be a distributor as well. And we pretty much completed the whole the whole chain of, of, of mass media, um, but made it available to everybody. And today, publish is a button in your web browser. You know, it's, it's just kind of amazing. Every time we pr- hit publish on a blog post or whatever, we don't think about it. But, you know, that's basically for 500 years from Gutenberg on, you know, you needed you needed to be an industrialist to be able to 
to be able to say publish that, you know, well, if I take, addresses. if I take your example too, it was that that's not publishing was, there was a button that said print. And then the web is, there's a button that says publish. And in the maker revolution, there's a button that says make that says print in 3d print it, atoms. It, 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 exactly. So, so the equivalent here to fast forward from desktop publishing is now, now rather than a laser um, printer on our desktop, we have something like a 3d printer on our desktop. My children are growing up with, um, with 3d printers. And I think, you know, uh, this is, the, this is, you know, this is the holiday season that it's time this, if you got kids, it's 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 finally time to buy to buy one. They're they're at they're at that kind of Mac moment uh, where they're easy and easy to use and, 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 and reliable. Rather than a word processor or a desktop publishing software, you have uh, CAD software, and some, it's again also getting very easy. It's free on the web. Things like Tinkercad, um, Autodesk One Two Three D, and in or SketchUp uh, from Google. And then in those in those programs, rather than rather than print, they have a button that says Make. And you choose whether you want to, you know, send it to the 3D printer or the, your laser cutter or CNC machine or whatever you have on, on your desktop, or send it up to the cloud to be made by a service bureau um, in whatever volume you want. R- right now, you're still only going to be probably be making you know, a, a few of those. It's a little bit like uh, like Picasa with your photo you know, management software. You you can decide whether you, know, you load the photos, you decide whether you print it on your desktop printer or send it up to a service to be turned into uh, you know a book or or um, you know or, uh, greeting cards for your friends. Um, so that's where we are right now. But the cool thing is that if you decide you want to make a million. That same file that you created, you can just send to another service. Um, it could be, um, you know, places like Alibaba, which uh, kind of in a web interface to Chinese manufacturing, or MFG.com, which is a web interface to American or North American manufacturing, and. You know that same file in the hands, uh, you know, in the hands of slightly more professional, you know, professionals who will kind of work through some of the manufacturing details will allow you to do mass production, and you know they take credit cards, and you know so that that you know it's not quite to the point that we have a button on our web browser that says manufacture, but we do have a button in our web browser that says make, and the, <laughs> and the path from make to manufacture is now just a few more button presses. I lived through the DTP revolution. I was trained as a typesetter. That was my first career. I'm, I like to collect obsolete professions, and, uh, and that was my first. And I witnessed that because typesetting was um, uh, like a hermetic profession. You had to know how to do it, and printing was a hermetic profession. There were all these secrets, and you know, it was it was a great. It, had, it was a kill, uh, wasn't it? I mean, you yeah, joined a union. There was all this knowledge that was locked away, and rightly so, because you had to work with giant mechanical systems that were difficult to use, and no, an amateur coming in would destroy things, right? And then you unlock that key after key, and one of the things you point out in the book, uh, page 158 of the hardcover edition for those following along at home, there's a chart that talks about the cycle of manufacture for quantity. So you make a few, and this was true with, uh, this is true and still is true with desktop publishing and printing. I want to print a hundred copies of something. I do that on my ink printer. I want to print a thousand or 10,000. I go to Kinko's. I want to print a larger quantity. Maybe I buy a, a system. If I'm going to do this regularly, I buy a small, cheap self-contained offset press that's available now. And I can print 10,000 in a small, without having a, a whole print shop like you used to have. But I need to print 20,000, 50,000. I go out to a publishing company and this, and, and maybe I need to print a million. I do go to China or Singapore, have it printed there and shipped back. You point out the same, this is the same revolution happening with the atomic stuff, the making stuff. If I want to print on a 3D printer, I can do a few, but talk about that scale issue because that's what's killed people in the past is yeah. making one or a hundred is easy, but when I need to make a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand million, that chart shows a great progression of how that might work. So this is, comes very much out of personal experience. Um, in our drones work, we primarily make electronics. And uh, again, uh, something I knew nothing about. I don't think I touched a soldering iron in 30 years um, until, until I started on this. Um, and so I'll just walk through how, you know, what, what we learned about scale and location, scale and geography. Um, and, then I'll, and then I'll extend it to uh, things beyond electronics. But what we learned is that, is that, the, is that the, the first one you make you make on your desktop, the first prototype you make on your desktop. And, you know, you just you use a breadboard or, you know, soldering iron and, you, you know, you hack it together. Um, then the next, then you said, okay, well, now I want a few other people to make it as well. And what you can do is you can, um, uh, there's a, there's free software um, from a company called Catsoft called Eagle, which allows you to very quickly turn your, um, your, 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 your design into a printed circuit board design, which you can then send to a service and then they'll make a printed circuit board for you um, pretty cheaply. It costs, you know, something about 10 or $12. And, um, and it comes 
and it shows up in your desktop. And, uh, and not only that, but you can also create a link to it so that other people can have it made. And then the component suppliers of the world, companies like Tichiki, um, are also opened on the web right now. And so you just link to all the parts. And so that's the next step. You sort of mm. say, okay, so here's, I kind of turned into a virtual kit where there's a number of links and people can kind of make their own. And it's, and it's pretty, pretty, you know, it's, it's a print circuit board, so it's pretty nice. Okay, that, that'll take you to a few tens. Now, people are like, can you just make it for us, please? Because I just really don't want to solder. And, and you, know, you hear a lot of that. By the way, every time you take, um, you take a, an element of complexity out of a project, you grow the market by like an order of magnitude. Take a soldering iron mm. out of a project, 10 times more popular. Take it from a kit to a, to a, to a box, you know, 10 times more popular, maybe even more so. And this is sort of um, just the sidebar here is the uh, open source movement. That used to be the issue with it years ago was people were like, I'm not going to compile Linux. And it was like, well, you can get a pre-compiled version. Well, you can get a computer that has it built in and every stage you went up there. And then that's where the support comes in is Red Hat selling an enterprise-supported license version, they don't make money off the software. They make money, as I think you do at DIY Drones, not from, I mean, you follow that same model up the chain. Exactly. We, we give away the bits and sell and sell the atoms. <laughs> you can precisely the same. We, we do follow, we were an open source community. We did follow a lot of the lessons from the software guys. That gets us to the point where we've kind of said, okay, there are these services, mm-hmm. um, you know, typically in the United States, that allow you to put it together. Then, then people say, okay, well, can you make it for us? And then we're like, fine. And we, um, again, you know, at this point, we, um, again, used sort of cloud services and made hundreds um, and and these are co- companies like Advanced Circuits who will who will you know source all the components for you, put them on a board for you. And again, it's not very expensive. But the problem is that they're you know it's still more you know it's still you're still putting a lot of cash up up front right. to you know to get these hundreds made. And, and you know it's not and it's it's because you're not really operating at serious scale. It's still kind of more expensive than you'd like. Okay, at that point, you're now, you know, okay, now we're doing multiple hundreds. And, you know, the problem is people just keep wanting more of them. <laughs> so we're going to have to keep doing this. And I'd rather not, you know, have to, you know, constantly be doing supply chain management. So then you go to China and you say, okay, um, you know, can you please, China's great at this, um, you know, services like Alibaba will, will, will make it easy. Can you please make, um, you know, 500 or 1,000 of them? And they're like, great, no problem. Um, you know, um, well, you know, you I obviously pay for it up front. And, um, you know, but by the way, you know, one, if you order 5,000, you'll get better pricing than 1,000. And so you start thinking about volume, et cetera. And, and then you write a pretty big check at this point. Mm-hmm. And then you wait a while. And there's a lot. It's very scary because you've now ordered a lot of something. And God help you if there's anything wrong with the design. <laughs> um, or if maybe the components were faulty or if they've, or if your supplier was unreliable and they've replaced the components you wanted with, with counterfeit components, which all, the, all of which happen. Um, and then it shows up. Um, but it's pretty, it was pretty inexpensive on a unit basis, but you have a terrifying experience of all your cash, you know, caught up in this big batch processing, you know, uh, deal. And, um, but let's say it works well and you now have decided you were going to get the volume discounts and you're going to get 5,000 and you get a massive box and you're like, pow, great, done it. Now you start selling them and you realize that you've got, you can't change the design. Oh, you're stuck. Yeah. You, you have got to sell all 5,000 of them before you can change the design. So you basically, your innovation process, oh, here comes another um, uh, uh, siren, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> your innovation process is just halted because you've, gone this, you've done this batch manufacturing uh, deal. And, and to say nothing, the fact that all your cash is, is, is stuck in inventory. So that's a terrible thing for entrepreneurship. You know, in the web model, you're, you're supposed to be iterating every day. And in this hardware model, once you decide to get volume efficiencies, you're basically discouraged um, from innovating in any way, shape, or form, including even process innovation. Mm-hmm. So, so then you realize, you know what? I kind of need to have my own factory. I need to do just-in-time small-batch manufacturing. It's the only way that I can respond to my community's you know, demand for innovation, continue to improve these things quickly, plus manage my cash. And then you go on eBay and you discover the pick-and-place machines. You know, you can get them used for you know a few thousand dollars. I should point out pick-and-place machines. We mentioned them before. Those are for those are automated assembly of circuit board components, right? As you give it, you give a machine a bazillion resistors and it sticks them exactly the same part, solders them, does the whole thing without any human intervention. Exactly, and so it, it, it does things with an accuracy that a human couldn't do, and also you know much faster um, than, than humans. So so now you're like, oh my god, I'm I'm turning, I'm a little microelectronics factory, and that's where and then you've now brought it back, and now you realize that you can't do it in your bedroom anymore, and you know, and and anyway, I, this is exactly the rabbit hole we went down, and, and, and now you have two factories in Tijuana. We have two big pick and place lines. We have you know uh, you know armies of people wearing you know company T-shirts who 
have protocols and, you know, we have supply chain management and ERP system. And, you know, here's the thing I got from reading makers though, was that I didn't feel, and this is, you know, I think the DIY drones is a consistent part of the book, but it's also only part. You tell us stories of a lot of other people doing similar things is I got the sense. And, and I think you will agree with me that, um, even though you've grown to this large scale and relatively rapidly, because it just happened, you, you scratched the right itch for people. It's not implausible for other people. That's the whole point is that, that there could be a hundred thousand people who scale at some level. And the scale for someone might be, I'm going to make a hundred of whatever a year. For someone else, it might be, I'm going to make a thousand. Someone else, it's going to be a hundred thousand. And they are going to go up this track and become a, you know, medium to large size business eventually. But that the, Elements of getting to that point of a hundred, a thousand, or a million are now so similar in a way that before the manufacturing base didn't allow. Do I take that right message away from the book? Absolutely. And all you need to do, I mean, the, and I'm sure the listeners already know this, is, is go to Kickstarter or go to Etsy, and, and you'll see it at work. Every one of those artisans on Etsy, um, the entrepreneurs on, on, on Kickstarter, are people who are embarking on this journey. They have an idea. Tip, you know, they wouldn't be on a Kickstarter if they were already a big company with access to this stuff. They're on Kickstarter because because they they want to start something and they want to embark on the production of a, of a product. And right now, they just have an idea. And they need they need the funding um, and community and feedback of the market research of Kickstarter to to decide whether it's a good one. Um, once they do it, you know, it, it, you know, there's there's really two kinds of Kickstarter success. There is you know, set a low target and 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 meet it, and that's great. You probably already figured that's, that's okay. Okay. Um, you probably already figured out how to make, you know, 200 or 400, 500, whatever you promised. Then there's the other kind of success, which is this kind of blockbuster success, like <laughs> yes. smartwatch, you know, where they set a target of $100,000 and ended up closing the thing um, at, at beyond $10 million. And uh, I think a 3D printer just set a record of two point something million just just uh, just today um, uh, in the uh, technology section of, of Kickstarter. But these are, these are ones where where the idea is good. It does resonate with the marketplace. And their notion that they were going to make a few hundred is now the, now a few hundred thousand. And then, you know, at that point, they very, they very quickly go up the learning curve and they, you know, fly to China and start, you know, and start, you know, in a matter of months doing what traditional companies take years to do, which is tooling up, sourcing suppliers, sourcing components, going, you know, learning about everything from SEC compliance to waterproofing. Um, And, um, you know, on a Kickstarter deadline, which is often measured in months, not not years. It's so painful. I know you're a a Kickstarter expert. Oh, I've talked to so many people. It's it's so painful. It's like growing pains. You go from being a baby to a grown adult in five minutes. And, you know, Kickstarter's recent changes where they're they're controlling the acceleration of some of these bigger projects. Some people were very angry about it, and I uh, wrote something for Boing Boing, and the comments were angry from a lot of makers and people who were like, I'm never going to use Kickstarter again because I, I want to be able to do this. And I thought, no, Kickstarter is being kind because most people coming into these projects, if they haven't scaled anything before, or even if they haven't scaled this particular item. And I got to tell you, you know, back to my own experience with 3D Robotics, I picked my partner, George Munoz, because he was doing the coolest thing I'd seen with Arduino. Um, it turns out that his real skill was, I thought, and I thought it was kind of a, a you know, sort of a, an accident or kind of an amusing, amusing footnote that he came from Tijuana. Uh, the real skill turned out that he came from Tijuana. That, um, <laughs> that what we needed was industrial manufacturing expertise. Yes. And it turns out that Tijuana is the Shenzhen of North America. Mm-hmm. So today, most of the team are Mexican-Americans. Um, they're engineers. They're um, incredibly sophisticated. You know, all that, all that, all that manufacturing skills that we feel we've lost in the United States, it's still there in Tijuana. Like all, every, like every flat screen you buy in the United States is made in Tijuana. No one knows this. It's got massive factories, oh, that's just, like, just like China. And so all those kind of ISO 9000, you know, experts and documentation experts and all the people who could teach us about ERP systems, they were all there in Tijuana. So, you know, you probably, most people think of Tijuana as, you know, cheap tequila and drug cartels. But what it really is, is a massive high-tech industrial base with the kind of skills at a kind of price that we can't get in the United States. And so that's, I was just lucky. And that's the reason, reason we were able to scale, scale so quickly. I was just lucky that my partner um, you know, he actually didn't know this stuff. He was tied into right. a, a culture that knew that stuff. And so we were able to find people who taught us these things super quickly and then move production to North America. 
and I say North America rather than simply the United States because I do feel that you know it's NAFTA, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, and you know, move, move production back to North America in a way that we can compete with China. Um, uh, in a in you know in, in units of you know tens or hundreds of thousands. I, I st- keep hearing the stories that you write in this book. I keep hearing from manufacturers too about China that China is you know it's a multi-edged, multifaceted sword, not just two-edged. That it that there's so much control you give up, you get the advantage of inexpensive labor, which as you point out is rapidly eroding because this qual- standard of living, cost of living is going up, and there's even some you know yuan uh, revaluation from time to mm-hmm. time too. So you know the co- Chinese labor as an advantage Advantage is gone down, and then there's just that issue of of intellectual property piracy, of people running the production lines at night for your stuff during the day, of subcontractors to subcontractors to subcontractors. You start to hear the story more and more about insourcing and resourcing and insuring, and it seems like what you're doing is now again, it's the economy writ small. Is it makes sense at your scale to do it, but at some point it may make sense at larger and larger and larger scales as well when the differential isn't there and the robotic advantage you describe in the book is present. Exactly. Remember, America is still um, you know, the world's leading manufacturer. We forget that. Um, we don't have the world. We don't have the, the largest manufacturing workforce, but we do have. We do make the most stuff, even more than China. And the way we've done is automation. And what 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 I'm you know, there's two forms of automation. One is the desktop, you know, sort of the small sort of startup entrepreneurial you know tools that that, that, that we're using. The fact that regular people can buy taking place machines on eBay. And the second is um, you know industrial scale auto- um, automation getting smarter and what uh, Rodney Brooks has just uh, mm-hmm. you know, announced with Rethink Robotics, which is a twenty-two thousand dollar kind of human replacement, and I use that phrase guardedly, but it's <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a you know, human torso size size robot that can do sort of human scale jobs. And twenty-two thousand dollars for a general purpose robot that can be trained to do almost anything with two arms. You know, that's like half the price of a person per year. Right, and then and it's it's an ample, it's a force amplifier too, like a bicycle. It's not a uh, it's not a force reducer. It means we can do much more. The workforce may change in some ways, but it doesn't mean that uh, you know overall employment doesn't necessarily directly correspond to removing people from a, uh, an assembly line. Right, exactly. So we have lots of people on our assembly line. They're just not doing a lot of hand assembly. They're managing machines. They're they're working on higher level, you know, tasks. In the mm-hmm. same way that we replaced, you know, the typing pool um, in our in our office. But those people went off and do more interesting things. They you know, become analysts or accountants, things like that. I don't know what actually an accountant is. Doesn't necessarily qualify. <laughs> I, I think so. Um, so um, we have lots of employees in our factories, um, but by and large, they've moved up the, the value chain. Um, the point is, though, is that the reason you bring back. The reason you bring manufacturing back to North America is not just that you know real countries make stuff; it's that shorter supply chains are better supply chains. You mentioned things like the you know, the cost of the issues in China and IP issues, etc. But don't forget political risk. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, don't don't forget um, quality. You know, issues that you know that you know you, you know if you do things that remove, you can't always have the same sort of hold and, and grasp over the quality issues. Um, and don't forget flexibility. Um, you know, fundamentally, we brought things back that allowed us to be more flexible, allowed us to do small batch, just in time manufacturing. That responded, that allowed us to innovate faster. Um, but it also, it also means that we that you know we get feedback from the marketplace, and we can we can put in place in production within days, you know, not weeks. Mm-hmm. Shorter supply chains um, mean that uh, they're, they're environmentally, you know, there's just less you know carbon, you know, uh, footprint in the supply chains. It doesn't doesn't uh, you know doesn't travel across the ocean. Um, it, it means that there's less of our money caught up in inventory and the supply chain itself. Um, and you know, and, and fundamentally, it means that we're more in touch with the with the production process, so that if there's issues, we understand them better and can design around them. So just putting the engineers and the and the, and the production team in the same room makes for a better product. This wasn't possible, you know, 20 years ago when we couldn't afford those kind of machine that kind of machine rate on mm-hmm. scale. But now that we can, we can. So regain our contact with, with, with manufacturing. We can have a factory that's attached to our marketing and our R&D and our engineering side. And I think as a result, a more nimble and higher quality um, you know, company. That's great. It's a great irony, I think, that right, it's the, more the, the more global the economies come, the more we can do digitally over the internet, the more inter, you know, the cheaper systems have, have cost, that it actually makes more sense to bring everything closer. And hey, hey, Boeing learned that lesson with the Dreamliner. The 787, they thought, could be a worldwide global 
global supply chain, it turned out making stuff under, even though everything was 3D modeling and modern composites and everything else, making things under one roof made a bigger difference than they than they realized. They're still learning that lesson. Exactly. I mean, I just to give one other example, I've, I've visited the Tesla factory um, here in um, Silicon Valley a few times since uh, Elon Musk's electric car factory. It is, uh, first of all, it's amazing that we have a, you know, a, a, a huge car factory in Silicon Valley. This is, you know, not a cheap labor, not a cheap land um, area. Now, the reason that it can be here is that many years ago, uh, GM and later Toyota had a big car factory here called the Moonie. It was it was uh, it was shuttered um, for economic. Oh yeah, I, I grew up in Fremont, not very far away from that. We knew a lot of people who worked at that factory before it was shut down. So that was, so you you remember it's yeah, that's huge. It, yeah. it's, it's I've just you know, never seen anything that, that big. Now that that had this Numi was was a state of the art factory at the time, and this was sort of nineteen eighties era, you know, Japanese-style production methods, which is a lot about automation, but it was very custom automation. Each machine did one thing, and as a result, it was, it was really inflexible. Um, you know, you needed a, basically a new machine to, to change the design or a new, a new tool and things like that. What Elon Musk did with the Tesla is he took out most of the of the, of the sort of single-purpose automation and instead replaced it with forest of KUKA robotic arms, which are these general-purpose robot arms. And as a result, um, what you have is a factory that can make almost anything. Mm -hmm. Today, they're making cars. Every car can be different. Um, tomorrow, I mean, they could be making refrigerators on the same line. It's, it, that's what general-purpose robotics does. And because these, these robots are multi-purpose, they just change the heads. They, you know, they're just going to reach down to this tool, this, this, this bar of tools, and they can just change the head, and now they're a different machine. Because they're so flexible, because they're, they're so powerful, there's fewer people in the loop, and you can you know, efficiently make cars in Silicon Valley. That's the way, you know, th this, this, this generation of automation, general purpose, flexible robotics, is the way manufacturing comes back. That's, I think it's a great, it's a great lesson. It's a great thing to remind people, I think, when, when they forget about, um, you know, how much we make here and what, uh, the new economies, or, you know, this is new economy 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, that it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, that everything goes to China. That's not the new economy. The new economy is new ways of thinking about every part of the manufacturing design and supply chain. As automation takes on more of it, for us, our, you know, labor is, is a few percent of product costs. Then you can start to focus on things we do really well here, which, you know, in here in the West, we have a fantastic innovation model. We have the webs, an open innovation model. We have open source. We have great contacts with the marketplace. You know, it's kind of direct feedback. And more to the point, we have fantastic design. If one thing comes out of the maker movement, it is the recognition, and I, one of my chapters is titled this, that we're all designers now. You don't need a degree in design. You know, every kid playing Minecraft is basically operating a CAD program, whether they know it or not. <laughs> That's um, true. Things like, you know, children playing digital, with, playing digital, Lego digital designer, and they are using a CAD program, a Tinkercad on the web, etc. I think we're at this moment where all we need to do is add, like, two 3D printers to the computer labs we already have in schools, and now they're digital design labs. And this is great. A generation of kids is going to grow up with the notion that anything they can imagine, put on the screen, kids are good at imagining things and putting them on screen, they can then fabricate, hold in their hands, take home. And I think that, you know, that when the next generation of manufacturing entrepreneurs emerges, I think they're going to be in the same way that we who got home computers, you know, in our youth, because our parents had the wisdom to believe that the computer was going to be part of a 21st century skill set. And this created Gates and Zuckerbergs and, you know, Pages and Brins of the world. That those home 3D printers, those 3D printers in schools, the recognition that digital design can be easily integrated in the school curriculum is going to create the next generation of uh, manufacturing. Well, you, you may have talked me into a Christmas present for my boys, but uh, we'll, we'll see where the make, if the MakerBot shows up under the tree. Chris, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this really uh, huge change in, in, in the world in general, I think. John, thanks so much for the opportunity. That was my conversation with Chris Anderson, now the chief of 3D Robotics, a firm that makes parts, kits, and almost fully assembled drones for personal use, and the editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine during a transition after a decade at the helm. This is the podcast, The New Disruptors. I'm Glenn Fleischman. We're part of the Mule Radio Syndicate. If you're interested in sponsoring this program, please visit sponsor.muleradio.net, and you can also find other fine podcasts at muleradio.net. Our theme song was composed by my good friend, Jeff Tolbert, and this was recorded in November 2012. 
Thanks for joining me. We'll be back again with another look at the future of connecting creative people and their audiences with technology. Thank you.